Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation around the curve, Brandywine Global's podcast series. I'm Katie Klingensmith with Brandywine Global, and I have a special guest today. I get to introduce for the first time a new member of the Brandywine Global fixed income team, um, Paul Macharski, who joined us just a few months ago. Um, he is formally the head of Global Macro Strategy, and in that role is able to provide some pretty terrific insights into our investment process on the Global Fixed Income team. I've been lucky because this year has been really complicated, and Paul comes with a deep background working with um, institutional investing and working in the Global Macro space. Um, he joined us from the, um, he's formerly the Director of Portfolio Strategy at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. And he worked previously as a portfolio manager and a global macro strategist in fixed income and currencies. So given all that background and given everything that's going on in the world, I'm especially excited to welcome Paul today to talk about where we are as we approach the mid-year in 2023. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much, Katie. So alas, we started 2023 with a lot of worry. Um, and I think many folks expected this year to be extremely challenging. It's been a busy year. However, growth hasn't been all that bad. Um, what, what do you what do you think about what some would call a growth upturn um, so far this year? No, absolutely. I think you know going into the fourth quarter of last year, it really did look like the global economy was on the verge of a recession. But I think, as you mentioned, you know, over the last six months, we've actually seen a pretty strong rebound in activity. And I think there are really three factors that have contributed to this rebound. One has been the, the reopening of Chinese economy. The second factor has been the, the reversal of the energy shock, which uh, hit Europe. And the third factor has been the, the rebound in uh, real consumer incomes as a result of decline in headline inflation. I think you know, the first two factors were being very hard to predict. No Chinese policy expert really predicted that you know China would pivot so rapidly and and remove all the COVID restrictions. I think for Europe, you know, a lot of it was just a question of good luck. Um, you know, Europe had a very mild winter, which uh, which helped to prevent this uh, possibility of energy rationing. And this idea, you know, and the the third factor in terms of uh, lower inflation supporting uh, consumer incomes. I think obviously that's been a sort of an important driver um, for growth. Now, for us, obviously, the key question is, uh, you know, kind of what happens going into the second half of the year and, you know, to what extent the global economy can remain resilient. Absolutely. And actually picking up on that third point about the drop in headline inflation, I'd love to explore more your expectations for the Fed and for monetary policy globally. But First, what, what do you think, what do you expect um, from inflation in the U.S. and globally? U.S. core inflation is still quite high. So in the last three, four months, it's been running at a sort of a four to five percent annualized rate, which is somewhat lower than what we saw sort of 12 months ago, but uh, still clearly too too high for the, for the Fed to be comfortable. Now, Ultimately, I would expect that core inflation will end up somewhere closer to two to two and a half percent by the end of the year. Now, I have to admit that this transition to lower inflation is taking a little bit longer than I actually expected. Um, but I, you know, I still think that we do, you know, kind of end up in that final destination. Now, in terms of what's going to take inflation lower, so one, I think core goods prices 
Now, excluding the impact of used cars, core goods price inflation is still running at a three to 4% rate, which is actually very high because before the pandemic, uh, you know, that used to be zero, if not somewhat negative. Now, given the, the rapid improvement that we're seeing in global supply chains, uh, lower import prices, falling transportation costs, um, you know, decline in sort of some key uh, inputs or the decline in prices in some key inputs like plastics, lumber, semiconductors. I think there's every reason to expect that goods prices will be meaningfully lower in the second half of the year. Now, the second you know thing that has really uh, boosted inflation has been uh, shelter. Um, now, we know that uh, market measures of rent in the United States have declined quite rapidly, and house prices are also falling. So there's every reason to expect that um, uh, shelter inflation measure in the CPI will also decelerate significantly in the second half of the year. Now, the last piece, that's, that's the piece which is most uncertain, is kind of what's going to happen to service inflation uh, outside of shelter. Now, if you look at the, the core PC measure of service inflation X shelter, which the Fed focuses on, it hasn't slowed at all. It's still running at sort of 5 to 6% rate. Now, you know, kind of the good news on that front is we are seeing signs of moderation in wage growth, even though employment growth is still quite robust. Now, why are we seeing that? I mean, the reason why we're seeing it is because in the last 6 to 12 months, we've actually seen a very sharp pickup in uh, labor force growth. And this is due to sort of people returning to the workforce after the pandemic. And also, I think very importantly, um, you know, a very sharp recovery in immigration. Immigration was very depressed during the pandemic, and now uh, it's, it's really starting to recover. So those three factors make a lot of sense, but you started out the answer to that question uh, with the projection that we could get inflation below 3% at the end of the year. It's been pretty sticky. Uh, why has it been so sticky? And might you be wrong on some of those factors? Absolutely. Look, I think I have more confidence on the first two factors in terms of goods price inflation, because I just feel like it's just a question of natural lags. You know, some of these sort of factors favoring lower goods price inflation, it just they just take time to work themselves through into uh, you know, actual lower uh, CPI prices. I think for shelter, again, you know, I think there's a very strong relationship between uh, owner's equivalent rent, uh, house prices, and some of these market measures of rent. And again, it's just a question of uh, lags. Um, I admit there's more uncertainty around, uh, you know, around service inflation. But you know, I feel like a combination of of the factors that I mentioned, plus on top of it, the fact that you know, if you look at commodity prices, you know, they have really come down uh, quite sharply over the last six to nine months. Um, you know, I think we, you know, these are the factors that should help to drive inflation lower. And even I think three percent, you know, like I think we end up going beyond three percent. I think it's going to be somewhere closer to you know two to two and a half percent. It's just a question whether it happens, you know, before year, end of this year or whether it's sort of something that happens in early 2024. All right. Well, that's that's certainly very directional. Uh, what do you think the Fed needs to see? I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about lags and Fed patients. What do they need to see to at least stop talking about potentially tightening monetary policy? Absolutely. So look, I mean, a few days, even you know, three, four days before the Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapsed over the weekend, 
uh, you know, Jay Powell was signaling that the Fed will need to raise rates by 50 basis points in March uh, and potentially, you know, do a lot more in the coming months. Um, you know, at that time, uh, markets were basically pricing in peak Fed policy rates closer to five and three quarters, you know, almost as high as 6%. Uh, that has really changed as a result of the, the regional banking shock. Um, where now is an expectation that uh, the May hike next week is going to be last uh, rate hike with uh, Fed policy rates peaking, you know, just a little bit north of 2%, uh, sorry, 5%. Um, obviously, you know, the inflation picture hasn't changed at all over the last six weeks. But what has changed is this uh, regional banking shock that we are dealing with. And, and clearly the Fed it does expect that the, the regional banking shock will create a meaningful drag on growth in the second half of the year. But there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of how much. So I think for now, they, they would rather go in the wait and see mode and you know sort of assess how much of a drag the regional banking shock is having on the economy and uh, also how quickly inflation is, is actually moderating. So even if the Fed waits, rates are pretty high. Uh, how likely do you think uh, that the U.S. can actually avoid recession this year? Look, I mean, you know, but I, I think there's a there's a decent chance that we avoid a recession, and by that, yeah, I mean we basically end up with a period of below trend growth, but without a significant increase in unemployment rate. That typically, you know, that's what defines a recession. I think overall, I'm probably leaning to the idea that you know there's a slightly higher probability that we do end up with a recession uh, later this year in early 2024. But I do admit it's a close call. Now, in terms of you know your question of how we potentially avoid a recession, I think what we could see is effectively like a series of rolling slowdowns that don't quite overlap. Uh, you know, if you look at housing investment, we've already had a very sharp downturn, which would be typically associated with recession. Uh, you know, we've seen quite a bit of weakness in business investment. You know, we've seen quite a bit of weakness in manufacturing sector. Uh, but at the same time, um, service consumption has been very strong, uh, you know, just because of pent up demand from uh, sort, of, sort of rebound from COVID. Uh, you know, excess savings, um, you know, sort of generally it's been supporting service spending. And you could see a situation where, uh, you know, as service spending slows in the second half of the year, some of these other sectors which have been depressed start to recover. So as a result, you just end up with, you know, these offsetting shocks, which give you below trend growth, uh, but uh, you don't end up uh, in an actual recession. You mentioned the shock to regional banks uh, mm -hmm. and between higher rates and uh, lack of, of credit because of that shock. Do you think credit availability will be important for growth? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, obviously, if you look at overall equity markets, they've, you know, they've recovered quite strongly from, uh, from a time when Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapsed. But if you look at uh, index of U.S. Uh, regional bank shares, you know, they're still down 30% and, and we have seen no recovery. Uh, you know, so clearly equity investors are quite concerned about the impact on bank profitability of this shock. Um, you know, as many economists have pointed out, uh, regional banks are a very important source of uh, credit for US economy, particularly for small business. And they've 
they've become much more important over the last 12 to 15 years, basically since the global financial crisis, where large banks have basically reduced their, their loan books and, and smaller and medium-sized banks have really come in to fill in, you know, fill in that uh, fill in that gap. So overall, I do expect to see a, a pretty meaningful tightening of credit conditions, you know, over the next six to nine, month, nine months. Uh, but it's just a question of um, of magnitude. And I think outside of banks, there's sort of really three areas that I very much focused on. One is commercial real estate. Second one is levered loans. And the third one is private credit. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, commercial real estate and you know, some of the risks around uh, offices. Um, you know, the only thing I would add to this discussion is that 20 to 30% of bonds backed by commercial real estate are floating rate instruments. So they, they see a direct hit from sharp increase in, uh, in Fed funds rates. And the share of floating rate origination was actually running as high as so 40 to 45% in, in last few years. So this combination of falling collateral prices and sharply rising um, interest costs, you know, certainly is going to put a lot of uh, commercial real estate investors in uncomfortable position. Now, when it comes to le levered loans and private credit, you know, what I'm worried about is just the fact that sort of 12 years ago, um, you know, these asset classes individually were worth sort of three to $400 billion each. Today, they are worth 1.5 to 1.6 trillion each. So we've seen very rapid growth, both in private credit and levered loans. Uh, you know, you've seen generally seen a decline in credit quality. And importantly, uh, both private credit and levered loans, again, these are floating rate instruments. Uh, so you're only going to see the sort of the full impact of the, like the most aggressive tightening, Fed tightening cycle we've seen since the early 80s. We're only going to see that in the in the second half of the year. It's interesting the the structure of the economy, how interest rate sensitivity is really little varies. Absolutely, and there's some areas where it's less. So you know, if you look at U.S. housing market, uh, you know, most households have uh, 30-year fixed mortgages, and you know, so they really haven't seen the impact of uh, rising policy rates. Uh, you know, it's quite different for countries like uh, Canada and Australia and some of the Scandinavian economies, where the pass-through from higher policy rates to uh, to mortgage costs is much quicker. Uh, but there are certain areas in, you know, kind of U.S. credit world, and I mentioned sort of private credit and levered loans, which, you know, they, they are very vulnerable to uh, to higher uh, higher policy rate uh, uh, costs. Absolutely. Well, we started out talking about some factors outside of the U.S., some positive surprises coming out of Europe and China. Do you feel like uh, those regions or others could potentially be supportive of the global economic and the U.S. economic outlook? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they have been in last four to six months. I think going forward, uh, you could certainly see service spending in China, Europe, Japan uh, being supportive for global growth. I think there's still some pent-up demand. Uh, you know, obviously, in case of China, you just reopen. But even in case of countries like Japan, a lot of the COVID restrictions and you know restrictions on tourism have you know just being lifted right now. So there, there is still pent up demand uh, in these economies. You generally see elevated level of 
uh, excess savings. Um, you know, in US, those excess savings are being drawn down, but uh, in some of these other economies, they haven't. So, so that's that's clearly one factor, which uh, you know, sort of this this pent up demand for service spending outside of the US is, is one factor that could support global growth. All right. Well, I want to bring this all together with a couple of final questions. Um, just taking a look at the U.S. curve and other financial markets. I mean, what do you, what do you think is priced in right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question, which we debate uh, all the time. I think overall, my conclusion is that markets are largely pricing in a you know some form of soft landing and a growth recovery in 2024. So, firstly, if I look at equity markets, U.S. equity markets. Um, you know, the equity risk premium versus bonds, it's still very low. It is at historically low levels, which is certainly not consistent with the idea that you could have a recession later in the year. Um, you know, if you look at consensus uh, S&P 500 earnings estimates from uh, from Wall Street analysts, that basically suggest that corporate earnings have already bottomed or EPS uh, you know, estimates have already bottomed, and we're going to see a pretty robust recovery going into the second half of the year and, and in 2024. Um, if you look at uh, credit spreads, uh, you know, again, there are some areas which are a little bit more elevated, but but again, not really pricing a meaningful r- risk of a recession. Now, the one area which potentially could, you know, market which could potentially price in recession risk is, is fixed income, just given the, you know, the very, very significant inversion of the curve. And Historically, that has been a, a leading indicator for uh, for future recessions. Um, although, again, to me, it's still debatable whether fixed income markets are truly pricing in this recession and sort of equity markets and credit markets are not. Another possibility is that basically what bond markets are pricing in is the idea that inflation is going to fall sharply over the next one to two years and as inflate without an actual recession. And as inflation falls, that potentially allows the Fed to cut rates to, you know, kind of two and a half, three percent, which is what they see as the, the long-term neutral rate, uh, which is why you end up with this uh, yield curve inversion, particularly between, you know, current or three-month rates and let's say uh, interest rates, uh, you know, three to five years out. So, so to, you know, overall, I guess, you know, in summary to your question, I still feel that most asset markets are priced in for. Uh, for a soft landing. All right. So asset prices are suggesting a soft landing. It seems like you're reasonably optimistic that we'll get a soft landing or a recession that's not too dramatic. But are there are there outside factors or inside factors that you're watching that could trigger a, an uglier scenario? Look, so I think, you know, the reason why as investors, we, you know, we really care about timing of recessions. As a macro investor, trying to predict Trying to anticipate a recession is is really important. And the reason why is because if you have a portfolio of sort of stocks, bonds, other risky assets, you generally want to hold them. But the only time you don't want to have them is during recessions. If you could find a way to effectively avoid recessions in that portfolio, you would generate fantastic uh, assets, hugely outperforming the market in the long run. Um, so, So again, so from the market, the perspective, the timing of that recession matters. Now, why does it matter? The reason why it matters is because in recessions, a lot of relationships become nonlinear. So outside of recessions, you know, you tend to see sort of steady growth in the economy, which leads to steady growth in earnings, which leads to steady 
uh, increase in asset prices. And in recessions, you know, these relationships become much more nonlinear. Uh, you know, corporate profits fall, that leads to decline in employment, that leads to decline in consumer spending, that leads to corporate defaults, that leads to tightening of financial conditions. Uh, you know, how it all plays out becomes very uncertain. That's why generally, you know, market volatility during recessions, it's much higher than, than outside of those periods. Um, you know, and then so trying to predict, you know, is it going to be what kind of recession is going to be? Uh, you know, is it going to be mild? Is it going to be not so mild? I, I take all these predictions with a grain of salt. Um, you know, and then the other relevant point too is uh, a recession could be mild, but certain sectors could be impacted more uh, more meaningfully. For example, in uh, 2001, uh, you know, we had a recession where GDP maybe contracted, you know, 0.2, 0.3% uh, uh, from the peak. So it was the mildest recession we've ever had. But S&P 500 fell almost 50%. Corporate earnings were down 20, 25%. And, you know, credit uh, sort of corporate defaults were, were up quite meaningfully. So just because you have a mild GDP recession doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a mild earnings recession. Absolutely. All right. So Paul, you've joined the Brandywine Global Fixed Income team and we invest in bonds. Uh, given all these factors, where does this leave you in terms of your views on duration? Sure. Look, so I think in the short term, U.S. yields could, you know, continue to range trade. I mean, ultimately, since since the start of the year, we've been in a sort of three and a quarter to, you know, just about 4% range, um, you know, and, and we could just stay in that range at least for a bit longer. Um, you know, as we really assess the fallout from the regional banking crisis and, and how quickly inflation actually falls. Um, but more broadly from a, you know, sort of, let's say, a nine to 12 month time uh, horizon uh, perspective, you know, we do have a bias to be at least somewhat long duration, somewhat long US duration, um, both outright and, uh, and relative to other G10 markets. Now, you know, why do we think that? I think ultimately we do expect that in the second half of the year, you're gonna see, you know, quite meaningfully lower uh, nominal GDP growth in the United States. Now this could be coming from lower inflation, this could be coming from lower growth or some com combination of both. And overall that will be supportive for US duration. Now the this idea of, you know, kind of having this elevated recession risk, and we can assess the probabilities that 40% is a 50% and 60%. It's very hard to handicap, but that risk is quite meaningful. And I think overall, that definitely warrants, uh, you know, at least uh, some overweight allocation towards uh, US fixed income. Well, thank you so much. It has been my pleasure to host this conversation with Paul Makarski, and certainly our pleasure at Brandywine Global to welcome him to the team. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much, Katie.